So let's turn to God's words. <clears throat> Shame comes in various guises. And if that screen up there suddenly started to play out, all my worst deeds, all my inner thoughts, you'd be horrified and I'd be deeply shamed. Though, of course, God knows them anyway. That's a strange thing, isn't it, really? Somehow in my fallen heart, the thought of other humans knowing about them is more shameful than the awesome, holy, awesome judge of all knowing about them. And then there's a shame that bizarrely attaches to us when we are the victims. You know about that? You felt that, maybe? We, when perhaps other people have hurt us, have done wrong against us, and we feel the shame. That's a strange thing, isn't it? It's the shame felt by the victim of abuse, of domestic violence, or by the betrayed spouse. But that's what sin does. Somehow, it evades responsibility by gaslighting its victims. It does that all the time. Last week, uh, Luke spoke uh, movingly, I thought, on Hebrews uh, 12, verses 1 to 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. This is verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus endured the cross, <coughs> scorning its shame. And following on from that, this week and next, as we move towards Easter, I thought I would just focus on a couple of occasions when we see Jesus enduring shame, the shame of the cross and the time leading up to it, and also enduring opposition from sinful men. So let's go back then, let's go back to the garden just before the cross and read about this shameful incident. This is Luke chapter 22 and verse 47. When Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we, should we strike with swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had all come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a, a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And so we see here, first, <coughs> first of all, we see shameful betrayal. We could talk a lot about uh, Judas's shameful betrayal, 
can speculate on exactly what his motives were. We've done that in sermons before. He was one of Jesus' close friends, one of the twelve. He'd been with him for three years, a trusted member of that group. He'd been the treasurer. He'd looked after the money bag. Um, But the signal he uses for the the God who came with him, the signal he uses was a kiss. I don't know how uh, important that was. I guess it was dark, but you'd think they'd know who Jesus was by now, but I guess it was dark. They may not have spotted him. I don't know if this would have been Judas's usual way of greeting Jesus. Uh, it would not have been, a, this would have been something that men did quite naturally, friend to friend in that environment, in that culture. But presumably, uh, they would not, they would have wanted, they'd conspired about this and they would have wanted the signal not to be too unusual, not to be too outrageous, just to, you know, to keep things calm. Uh, so that they could stay in control. But of course it is outrageous. As Jesus himself notes, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss, with a sign of friendship, a sign of affection? This used as a mechanism of betrayal. That is outrageous, isn't it? It's shameful. But again, this is the very nature of sin to clothe itself in seeming virtue. As uh, Cornelius Plantinger Jr. notes, to do its worst, evil has to look its best. Evil has to spend a a lot on makeup. And it was ever thus. We see this in so many ways. We see it in the, we see it so often, we see it in the horror of abortion in our day and age, which is dressed up as a matter of women's right to choose. Now, it's undoubtedly true that sinful, selfish men have used the reproductive and biological differences between men and women to oppress and constrain women. That's true. But to address that at the expense of lives of those vulnerable humans, babies, in the womb, in the very place they should be most protected. That is evil, clothing itself as virtue. And we can think of other examples. Um, In American politics, there's a phrase, states' rights, states' rights, which sounds perfectly honorable. The principle that each individual state should not be bulldozed by the man in Washington. But of course, Right from the Civil War onwards, that phrase, states' rights, has become a dog whistle for firstly, right back in the day, back in the 19th century, for upholding slavery in the Civil War. That was about states' rights. And more recently, for hanging on to uh, mechanisms of institutional racism and anti-civil rights agenda, evil clothing itself as good. And of course, sadly, church history is full of this, isn't it? Full of atrocities performed in the name of Christ. Think of Putin today invoking the support of the Russian Orthodox Church to protect Russia from immoral, liberal Western values. Now, that is not an illegitimate concern. We can see that. But to use that as a rationale for invading Ukraine, 
that is evil clothing itself as good. And so it was ever thus. As J.C. Rowell uh, puts it, sorry, I've uh, got ahead of myself there. No, we'll go to J.C. Ryle. Here we go. The worst and most wicked acts may be done under a show of love to Christ. The false apostle Judas Iscariot had never wanted, has never wanted successors and imitators. There have always been men ready to betray Christ with a kiss and willing to deliver the gospel to its enemies under a show of respect. We too can do the same. We too can betray Jesus whilst offering shows of affection. We too, we can so easily. We sing saintly songs on a Sunday. Shows of affection. But how do we live on a Monday to Saturday? Maybe we live as if Christ didn't exist or if we're ignoring <coughs> his lordship. If so, we are betraying when we own Christ here, fervently expressing our devotion, but then fail to own him out there, we're betraying him. If we claim to love him whilst acting coolly and ungenerously towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't we betraying him? If we say we love him whilst not reaching out with that same love to our neighbors, Aren't we betraying him? Now, you might have grown up hearing all about Jesus. You've grown up in this church, maybe, or in another church. Well, Judas was no stranger to Jesus. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Yet he betrayed him. And so might you, if you take your Christian upbringing for granted, assuming you can drift along attempting to enjoy all the world has to offer and planning maybe later when you settle down to get more serious about your faith. You may think you're well acquainted with Christ. Judas teaches us that being a close acquaintance is no guarantee that you won't betray him yet. That's quite a thought. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? But imagine the shame too of someone betrayed by their friend. The shame felt by the victim. And we'd all feel that, I think. If someone close to us, perhaps we have felt that, when someone had close to us, maybe someone we thought liked us, has found to have been harboring negative thoughts about us, or been, you know, saying nasty things about us to other people, we feel dirty, don't we? We feel, oh, we've, we, we obviously misread that friendship, and it eats at our own sense of worth. Misunderstood, dismissed, completely unvalued. Have you felt that at someone else's, uh, when someone else has behaved like that? Jesus experienced that. Jesus experienced the shame of betrayal. Actually, in God's great plan, of course, the treachery of Jesus, Judas has a huge role to pay, play to bring Jesus to the cross. That's astonishing the way God works like that. I don't know how he does it. It doesn't lessen 
Judas's responsibility one jot. It was his evil. But somehow God works in and through that. But here's what's extraordinary. For anyone to be crucified was shameful. It was the, the death of a rebel, uh, exposed and humiliated. But in going to the cross, Jesus took extra layers of shame because he wore the very shame of those who had betrayed him. Those who put him on the cross. Jesus took up their shame. Took their blame. And the very instrument of torture that they had nailed him to. Isn't that astonishing? He hung there with the sin of the world on his shoulders. Including the sin of the betrayal he'd just experienced. He scorned that shame. He shouldered it anyway. A few months back, we were traveling on holiday uh, with my sister and husband, uh, which was fun, not done that for a while. And uh, we were going on various uh, types of public transport. And I developed the habit of uh, leaving my binoculars, which I was carrying with me. I kind of developed this habit of leaving them behind whenever I got off various modes of transport on successive buses and trains and plane even. Uh, I'd pick up my bag and forget about my binoculars. In response, my sister, who is just a wonderful person, my sister just developed the quiet habit of just picking them up for me. Just, you know, she wouldn't make a fuss about it. She didn't shout, hey, Graham, you've forgotten these again. She just picked them up and carried them until I noticed. <laughs> Happened several times. Why did she do that? Well, because she cares for me. She's my big sister. She looks out for me. She loves me. At every step of the way to the cross, Jesus picks up our burden. The things we'd actually rather leave behind, but we cannot. He picks them up. He picks up our shame. So here's the thing about the shame due to our sin, which we all know. We don't have to gaze very deep to find it, do we? Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just know about that shame. He's owned that shame. He's picked it up. That's our Lord. That's our Lord Jesus. Isn't he wonderful? He's borne its curse. Why? Because he loves us. We've sung it this morning. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, even the blame of our own treachery. But we don't just see shameful betrayal in this passage. We also see steadfast ministry. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? 
And one of them, we learn elsewhere, it was Peter actually, he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. What not that astonishing? This is, you know, uh, Charlie was talking about the compassion of God. That compassion. Isn't, don't we see this here? Jesus' compassion for the hurt that his misguided followers have caused. That's lovely, actually. When we think about the hurt that we talked about, I mentioned, you know, all the ways the church has caused hurt in the name of the Lord. We, we wouldn't have to go very far through the history books to find that again and again. And it's used as ammunition against the gospel, against the church, of course. Isn't it good to know that Jesus has compassion on the victims of our misguided attempts? That's good to know. It's important to remember that. As we put up our hand, yes, that was not good. Yes, that was bad. Yes, we should not have behaved about it. It's important that we do that. Isn't it good to know that Jesus had, has compassion on the people who have been hurt in his very name? It's interesting, though. All the Gospels uh, record Jesus' disciples' violent response but only Luke records Jesus' healing. Now, I don't know why that is, except that the full-orbed nature of salvation, that salvation saves, delivers, heals the whole human person, not just their spirit, but the whole human person, that is something that Luke seems to be particularly interested in. He likes to emphasize the same Greek word is often used for to heal as to save. So, so it's the same word. Uh, for Luke, it's not just that the healings in the gospel point to a greater work of healing salvation to come, which is how we might describe the healing sometimes. It's rather that Jesus' work of salvation brings deliverance on all levels. And these healings are a taster a down payment of the full healing to come when humanity is restored holistically, physically, mentally, spiritually. And it's good to remember that. But imagine the scene. This would have been a confusing scene, chaotic scene, wouldn't it? Judas appears from nowhere. He disappeared at the meal. Remember Jesus, they met the penny may have dropped. Oh yes, who's this person that's going to... Um, uh, betray Jesus, oh, he's missing them. The penny may have dropped, but these disciples weren't always the sharpest pencil in the pencil case. Um, but so Jesus appears, where's he been? Where's he been? Perhaps there was a bit of friendly banter. Oh, where have you been, Judas? You've missed an interesting time. Well, you can imagine a bit of friendly banter. And then they notice the soldier. He's bringing soldiers. What's going on? But he greets Jesus in a friendly manner, and maybe that makes them relax a bit. But then the soldiers are on him, arresting him. What's going on? Imagine the, the confusion. Imagine tempers beginning to flare, self-preservation mode kicking in. Someone lashes out and an ear comes off. It's fight or flight, isn't it? 
Except that Jesus does neither. And actually, by healing this man's ear, he's simply continuing his ministry, proclaiming in both word and deed that the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his great message. That's the summary of his great message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. That's what he preached. And the evil of others, the opposition of sinful man is not going to distract him from the purpose of his coming. Ourselves, well, we get easily distracted, don't we, by other people. When we face opposition, when things don't quite go our way, you know, when we're trying to follow the Lord, we get easily distracted. We, we, we retreat or we, you know, just start to play safe or whatever it might be. We'd be fine, we think. We'd be fine loving others if the others involved weren't so difficult to deal with. And when people give us grief, so often we respond in kind, don't we? Or if we don't respond in, in kind of outer kind, we find ourselves withdrawing just not going to have anything more to do with them. And Jesus could have fairly said, look, I'm here because I'm trying to love these people, but look at them, they make it so difficult. He could have just left us to our own devices. Who would have blamed him? But he didn't. And it was in this manner that he went all the way, step by step to the cross. Because this is why he came, to die for us, to deal with the very difficult opposition that he's been facing, to destroy the works of the evil one, including those very works that put him there, including the very evil works of his own followers in this case. And for him to have become distracted from that, well, evil would have won the day. So he healed the man's ear. Uh, surely, just first of all, an act of pure compassion. What a man to have this compassion when he himself is under such threat. But in this act of compassion, so he asserts the goodness of God's kingdom in the face of sinful treachery to restore, to recreate. This is what God is doing, will do, has done launching his recreation when he raised Christ from the dead, of course, and will do completely when Christ returns. New creation. He is not going to let evil have the last word. He is not going to let evil set the agenda. And that is what happens, isn't it? When we find ourselves hitting opposition and retreat or responding kind, we're letting evil set the agenda. Jesus didn't do that. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And what does the Hebrews writer say then? He says this, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, are you weary this morning? Some of us, I think, are weary. Some of us might be in danger of losing heart. What are we going to do about that? Well, what else can we do but consider him? That's what we're doing, isn't it? 
in the face of opposition from sinful men, Jesus did not give up. He continued his steadfast ministry. And so when we find ourselves growing weary and losing hearts, because after all, here we are trying to do the right thing, but these people around us just get in the way, what should we do? Consider him. Look to him. When our loving acts are treated with indifference, or maybe even worse, they're taken for granted, or maybe even responded to with spite, and that happens, doesn't it? It's happened. It's happened here. It's happened. It happens. Consider him. When that happens, consider him. And keep going. When we stick our heads above the parapet and own Jesus at school or college or at work and just get a load of grief without any evidence at all of anyone being impressed by our testimony, what do we do? Consider him. Meditate on him so that we don't grow weary and lose heart. When we're trying to serve faithfully, when we're trying to pray faithfully, and life just gets so hard with illness or sadness or loneliness, or anxiety, what do we do? We consider him. Behold the man upon the cross. Behold the man in the garden, receiving that public but treacherous display of affection. Responded to hatred and evil with compassion and love. Consider him. And so, when we face opposition, let's not retreat into a sulk, as some of us tend to do. Let's continue to lean into doing good. You know, Jesus was later vindicated. He was. He was. We're not saying we carry on because it doesn't matter. It does matter. But Jesus was later vindicated. He was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of uh, the majesty on high. That's what uh, the writer says. Uh, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God there in Hebrews. Uh, Here's the thing. He suffered. He was vindicated. We who suffer for his sake, we too will be vindicated. We will be. It's not in doubt. Or maybe you are still betraying him. Though you've heard about his love often. You've heard about his goodness often. You may even have seen that in action. Yet you are still determined to do away with him, actually. You may not put it in those terms, but by ignoring him and getting on with your life, that's what you're trying to do. Because actually you want to live life your own way. You want to fit in with your mates. You don't want to stand out like a sore thumb. And you'd rather that that particular relationship here on earth, that seems so solidly real, even though the person you're clinging to doesn't love Jesus and will have no interest in helping you grow in your love of Jesus. That person seems so real and Jesus, you know, he's a bit further away. And so we cling to, I understand that. I understand that. 
And I don't judge that. But it makes our following Jesus so much harder. Well, that sin, the one you know about, the one that is just you know is coming to mind and you're trying to push it away, the one that is so shameful and you hate it and you love it at the same time. You feel the shame of it, yet you cannot seem to lay it aside. Friend, Jesus sees the shame of it too. He knows it and he wants to own that shame, to carry its burden, to release its hold over you as you turn in repentance and faith. Are you going to do that? Perhaps you think, oh, yes, but I've done that so many times. What, friend? Turn again. That thing has power over you in as much as you keep it hidden. Be open with the Lord. Maybe be open to someone else. That, that can reduce its power, its hold over you. Turn and repent. Consider him. Trust him. Follow him. He wants to own your shame. To release you from its grip. Or... These guys, Jesus speaks to, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs every day? Out in the open, I was, I was with you in the temple courts. You did not lay a hand on me. They came in the darkness. This is your hour when darkness reigns. Is this actually the hour you want to embrace? The hour of darkness, because that's what you're doing if you're holding on to that shame. The hour of darkness is the hour of shame. What are you going to do with your shame? Just brazen it out? Are you going to call it good and brazen it out? Or are you just going to try and bury it? Hope it'll go away. Maybe like Judas, you're actually filled with remorse. Judas was filled with remorse, wasn't he? The remorse destroyed Judas. Because it wasn't true repentance. Repentance isn't just feeling regret. Repentance isn't just feeling ashamed or feeling sorry for what you've done. Repentance is turning around and coming to Jesus, accepting his forgiveness and making him your king, your Lord, your boss. Embracing the kingdom by acknowledging the king. And just look at this king. Why wouldn't you follow him? What other person are you going to follow? The king who endured the cross and scorned its shame. Your shame. Even this deep darkness of treachery cannot turn back Christ's coming light. Consider him. And turn away from the hour of darkness. Turn to the light. Let's pray. Lord God, we kneel in wonder. How can we do other? Look at this man. is astonishing 
so full of goodness and compassion and gentleness, even in that moment, and yet strength. Lowly and humble, yet all-powerful. This is our God. This is our Lord. This is Jesus. And we love him. And we want to love him more. We pray that you'll pour your spirit into our hearts and enable us to love him more. Because we know what actually counts is that he loves us. He's owned our shame. He's hung there for us. And you've raised him up and sat him at your right hand and he's there in glory now. And we look up and we worship him. And those of us who believe, well, we know that actually there's a sense in which, a real sense in which we're there with him now. Lord, help us to consider him every moment of every day, to consider him. And Lord, if we've not let yet turned in repentance and thrown ourselves on his grace and mercy, help us to do that, Lord. Help us not to go on shouldering that shame ourselves or to brazen it out or to try and bury it. We can't do it. It's an impossible burden to carry. Lord, help us just to hand it over, turn in repentance and receive your loving forgiveness and life forever. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name.